is The Uprising. I'm your host, Greg Brailsford. Today, we discuss the climate crisis here in Rhode Island with renowned activist and renewable energy expert, Christian Roseland. Plus, how you can upgrade your home to solar for much less than you might think. Welcome, everyone, to The Uprising. It's just me today. Steve had a possible exposure to someone who was possibly exposed to COVID and was not able to get a test in time to come out for the show here. So we wanted to play it safe. And so Steve's staying home today. Uh, But on behalf of Steve and uh, myself, (laughs) I want to thank everyone who came online to hang out at our fundraiser last Friday. Had a great time seeing all of you. And uh, very appreciative of your donations, both for the event itself and on Patreon thereafter. Uh, We're very appreciative for your support, and I want to express that gratitude that we have for everybody for not only reading our articles uh, that we do on Uprise RI, but also contributing monetarily where you can. And when we get, not everybody can do that, Um, but we appreciate your support nonetheless. Uh, It was really nice to see everyone. It's been such a long time since we've been able to get together and have an in-person fundraiser or get-together for Uprise. But don't worry, uh, when things do improve, hopefully this summer, we're going to throw a heck of a blockbuster for everybody and all our progressive friends here. So, all right, we have two guests you're going to want to hear from today. Uh, First is the current editorial director for the Rocky Mountain Institute and former editor of PV Magazine U.S., Christian Roseland. Uh, Christian is very well known uh, for his insight and analysis of the expansion of renewable energy here and throughout the world. Uh, I should note he's appearing uh, just as himself. He's not here representing RMI or anybody else. Uh, He's just out here representing himself as an activist and a big-time energy and environmentalist. Uh, So really excited to hear from him. You're going to want to hear his insight on the growth of, of green energy. It's really exciting to hear. So My second guest is a guy you're going to want to talk to if you're considering upgrading to solar. And I'm going to tell you why. Adam Gent knows solar inside and out. Um, You'd never know he worked for an installer, though, when you talk with him. He's never trying to sell you. He's always looking out for the best solution for your budget and needs. Um, If you're considering solar and you have no idea what it will cost, where to start, I couldn't recommend anyone better than Adam Gent. Um, I did not, in fact, use him. I didn't know him when I got solar from my home, and I'm, I'm really sorry that's the case because I ended up talking to him about battery storage uh, a few months ago, and I was just blown away by not only his insight and helpfulness, but the fact that he was clearly just trying to be helpful and not in any way trying to make a sale. Uh, I had inquired about two products uh, that he sold, one you can buy directly from the manufacturer, and Uh, He straight up suggested that I try buying from the manufacturer first, uh, that they might have better availability. So you've got a situation here where he could have made money and chose uh, not to, to say, you know what, do what's best for you because I want you to be happy in the end. And and someone like that is someone that I would absolutely uh, recommend to our Uprise listeners. And and you guys know us, we don't do sponsored uh, sponsored posts. Uh, we don't do paid placement. We don't do any of that kind of stuff. It, it really, it ruins our integrity when we do. So, um, you know, we don't play that game. And so having Adam, Adam on, it was, it was really important that he be the type of person that is going to be informative and, and tell our readers uh, the real scoop on, on solar without trying to be salesy about it, without projecting things that are rosier than they really are, you know, things of that nature. So really excited to have him on. And uh, so he'll be our second guest. Right now, I want to uh, welcome on our first guest. 
current editorial director for RMI, and a strong green policy advocate, Christian Rosalind. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. Pleasure to meet you. We haven't met in person, but we've chatted quite a bit on social media, and I'm a big fan of your industry knowledge and advocacy. You get me and a lot of other people really excited about the future of renewable energy. And speaking of being excited about the future, we've already started to see incredible policy swings nationwide on many zero emissions initiatives. Uh, We saw recently that in Texas and more broadly in the Southwest Power Pool that more energy was generated in 2020 from wind than from coal. How does that trend compare here in New England? Uh, Well, so the Southwest Power Pool, you know, it's interesting. It's, it's, it's the SPP, but it really represents the plain states, and that's where we have the most wind in the country. We have the best wind resources there. We've built the most wind as a portion of our generation fleet. So that's sort of the leading edge. People think California is the leading edge of the energy transition. It's really the plain states. And uh, I think what's it, when you look at New England, it's a completely different energy landscape. Here, we're largely dependent on fracked gas brought in from Pennsylvania and West Virginia via the Algonquin pipe, largely via the Algonquin pipeline. Uh, we have some, nucle- some legacy nuclear power. And when it comes to decarbonizing by wind and solar, we're way behind the rest of the country. So it's, it's very interesting because there's a bit of a contrast between the pro-act-on-climate rhetoric that you hear uh, from politicians in New England and the general sentiment that we need to do something about this, and the fact that in many ways we're actually behind the red states. So in terms of New England, you're thinking solar is probably going to be the main driver for renewable energy here. We're not going to see too much in the way of wind. I know we have the offshore wind farm, which has a very popular, um, gotten a lot of press and and whatnot. But uh, how much do you see in terms of expanding on wind in New England? Is it going to be mostly offshore? Well, yes, I believe that mostly what we're going to be doing in the future, offshore wind is the biggest opportunity for New England in the future in terms of renewable energy. Uh, And there's several reasons for that. There's the fact that it's a great resource. I mean, offshore wind blows more steadily than land-based wind. Anytime you get on the coast, you have different wind patterns. And the other thing is that it, it blows right when we need it the most. You know, in advanced economies like ours, where there isn't as much manufacturing, there isn't as much daytime demand, the electricity demand tends to peak in the late afternoon to evening. And that's when the wind is blowing offshore. So there's that that nice matchup. Also, with wind, you tend to, in most places, uh, get a higher output. This isn't true on the West Coast, but pretty much everywhere else that I've studied. You get a higher output uh, in the winter, fall, and spring than the summer. So it's a nice counterbalance to solar. I think in the end, we're going to need both. Uh, but I think offshore wind is really, uh, it's, it's a great resource and it's a great future direction for New England. I should also add that it's great for jobs. It's great for ports. Uh, these offshore, generally speaking, renewable energy, wind and solar doesn't need, um, it doesn't have the same operating costs, but offshore wind farms do need maintenance. And well, first they have to be built, they have to be assembled. You bring in the parts, they've got to be assembled at a port. Then you take them offshore and they need to be actually erected. And then you need to go back from time to time to fix them. In all of that, there's jobs and there's employment for people in coastal areas. Uh, There's economic opportunity. It's great. Now, in terms of land-based wind, um, our resources are okay in New England. The bigger problem that we have in New England is NIMBYs. And it's it's, it's nearly impossible 
to build land-based wind in southern New England. So let's talk about that acronym for a second, NIMBY. Uh, you hear it a lot, and you've probably seen it in print. Maybe, maybe you didn't know what it means. It means not in my backyard. So, uh, And this is a problem because you get people, especially liberal on the liberal side, who claim to be for, you know, the environment, for climate change, for all these, you know, progressive type principles and policies. But when it comes to implementing them, they want nothing to do with it if it's going to interfere with their view or their particular street or their area or anything like that. And a opposing movement has cropped up uh, called YIMBY. And YIMBY obviously means yes in my backyard. And, you know, you've been a pretty big proponent of that. And that's a great thing, because if you're going to talk the talk, you should walk the walk. So tell me a little bit. Tell us a little bit about the whole YIMBY uh, thing. Yes. And YIMBY is more than, you know, a hashtag on my Twitter profile. It's a movement. There are YIMBY organizations that have started on the West Coast, a lot of them around housing, where it's been extremely difficult to build housing in urban areas, largely because there's a small group of affluent homeowners who've decided that they don't want any more dense housing, they don't want any mixed-use developments, that they're going to go to every city council meeting and fight every kind of development. But, you know, we have the same problem when you try to build a wind farm. There are all of these things that we need to build to fight climate change. And in many cases, you know, the problems that we're running into are not, a lot of them are small groups of privileged people who decide that they don't want to look at these things or decide that they don't want less affluent people moving in near them and to be their neighbors. And this kind of grotesque selfishness is, is antithetical to what we need to be doing today. So, you know, it, it's up to the rest of us. It's up to the rest of us to organize as YIMBYs and say, yes, yes, we want more dense housing and affordable housing. Yes, we want wind turbines. Yes, we want to see, you know, we, we need to build this future. Uh, it's necessary for justice. And, you know, I want to point out that with energy infrastructure, there's a particular irony here in that poor people and people of color have always had to bear the negative consequences of our energy infrastructure. They've That's had to bear the right. pollution. They've had to bear the air pollution. They've had to bear, you know, the dangers of being near these noxious plants. They've had to bear the negative health outcomes. And in the case of things like wind and solar, there aren't any of those, you know, there's no air pollution. There's no negative health outcomes. The only thing that we're asking people is for their view to change. And I personally happen to think that wind turbines are beautiful. I think they look like the future. Uh, you know, and we're just asking people to see transmission lines or to have a cable laying through their neighborhood. You know, maybe not even directly in their neighborhood, maybe near their neighborhood. You know, these are the sorts of things that we run into opposition against. And we just can't have this. So, again, it's up for the rest of us to organize and act in the greater good of humanity, of our children, uh, and of our of the future of our species. I agree. We're all in this together. And you hear that phrase a lot, but when it comes to the action of actually backing that up, you don't always see it. So it's nice to hear there's a movement out there to say, you know what, we need to allow these things to happen. And it's funny you mentioned that. I do want to come back to jobs in a second, but the city of Berkeley, California actually pulled a 180, I think it was last week, and instead of enforcing parking minimums at various uh, apartment complexes, housing complexes, uh, various facilities, things like that, it's now enforcing a parking maximum. Uh, they want to get rid of and reduce the number of cars um, in, in the city. Uh, what are the impacts of this? Right. So 
this is really this is climate policy. And, and this is something that I get into in the piece that I recently published with Martin Lynn on Uprise, uh, which is that we've talked a lot about electricity. And listen, electricity is absolutely key to decarbonizing. And part of that is, is that so much of what we need to do in the rest of the economy involves electrifying. So we need to get to clean electricity, and then we need to electrify buildings. We need to electrify transportation. But a lot of the changes, there's a lot of other changes that we need to make that aren't just about electrification. They're about the way, way we live, the way that we get around. You know, I, I live on Hope Street, and my neighborhood, it's, it's a great neighborhood. The quality of life is phenomenal here. I can walk out my door, and there's a restaurant catty corner from me. There's a convenience store that sells Indian food right across the street. There's little retail shops down there. And, you know, if I need, if, if I need to get something, I don't have to go get in the car and drive because I can walk there. And, I, you know, even when the weather's bad, hey, it's only a few blocks, Right. Right. This is the way that people live in cities throughout the rest of the world, that they live in Europe, but our auto-dominated culture has caused us to have to drive long distances to meet basic needs. And, you know, this again, this is another thing that's worse for poor people, because oftentimes, you know, when I used to live in New Orleans, we had food deserts. We had whole neighborhoods, particularly after, after the Hurricane Katrina, where you had to drive for miles to get food. And, and this is a real serious problem, because more and more, Affluent people are ending up near the services, and poor people are being pushed to the margins. And, you know, less affluent people are having to drive distances to, to just to meet basic needs. So one of the ways that we get around this is that we change our patterns of building, and we change our patterns of building so that they're not so dependent on the automobile. That means more dense housing, it means more mixed use, and it means building for people and not for cars. So parking maximums and parking minimums, this may seem sort of distant and wonky, but in the end, this is about building the kinds of cities and the kind of settlement patterns that we need in order to have a low-carbon society. Because, listen, EVs alone, EVs are great. Hey, I have a, a plug-in hybrid. I, but they're not going to get us where we need to be by 2030. We're going to have to do more than that. So, obviously, we pointed out the example in, in Berkeley, California. Are there examples in Rhode Island? Um, anything stirring, whether in Providence or elsewhere, that could have similar effects? Well, I think right now is a really hard time for public transit, um, given the COVID pandemic. I, I myself, I, you know, I have a, a son in the Boston area. I used to take the train all the time. But yeah, it's, it's just not safe. Uh, you know, and I would take MBTA up there. I was, I was happy to be an MBTA commuter. I could work on the train. Uh, you know, so it's, it's, right now is really tough for public transit. I think what basically we need to do is keep public transit alive, uh, to get through this pandemic and then look uh, look at a broader vision of it. But, you know, it, public transit isn't the only way to get around that doesn't involve an automobile. I'm personally really excited by the work that Providence Streets Coalition is doing. Big shout out to Liza over there. Uh, she's done amazing work. Um, she, uh, they've started organizing with youth groups in the city uh, to to make streets more accessible, not just for cars. Look, a lot of a lot of young people a lot of poor people, a lot of immigrants don't have cars in our city. And, you know, if you go to Federal Hill and you see who's working in that restaurant, there's a whole bunch of people showing up on bikes in all in those restaurants on Federal Hill. A lot of them are immigrants. A lot of them, some of them may be undocumented. I don't know. But, you know, they're, they're sort of, they're not as visible. But there's still a lot of people for whom a bicycle is a way that they get to work and that they meet basic needs. And so what Providence Streets Coalition has been doing is it's been working hard to uh, help to implement the mayor's vision of making this of making Providence a city that you can bike around. You know, I used to be a bike for years. I was a bike commuter without a car. And it 
it was a great lifestyle. And it's, you know, this is an, a dense city. We had a larger population in Providence before the advent of the automobile than we do today. This was a city that for hundreds of years operated without automobiles. And so because of that, we have a kind of an urban fabric and a density here where it hasn't been destroyed by awful projects that, that makes it really natural to get around without an automobile. And there's, there's multiple ways we can do this. You know, the, the future isn't, it isn't one uh, solution to moving away from the automobile. It's building denser cities. It's walking. It's biking. It's mass transit. And all of these things work together. That's a great point you brought up. I want to identify, so, so we talked about a couple of things we can do here. I say, I'd say identifying the top sources of carbon in the atmosphere is key, obviously, to decarbonization. Um, when it comes to Rhode Island, what are the biggest drivers of pollution in our state? Well, the transportation sector is the biggest sector. And, you know, if you just Google Rhode Island greenhouse gas emissions, you'll use this chart. You can get to this chart. The, the state government has it. I think it's on the right M's page. I forget which one. But... Uh, it's 35.7% of our carbon emissions. Electricity is only, I want to say, 25.4%. Um, let, me, let me check that number real quick. But it, transportation is a much bigger source. And so we have to be thinking about transportation. Unfortunately, our state government has been moving in the wrong direction. When you look at the quarter billion dollar in Garvey bonds that was borrowed so that we could uh, work on I-95 in downtown Providence, including adding more lanes, you know, Rideout wants to say, oh, we're not widening it. Well, you're adding more lanes. It, it's really clear that Director Alvedi and Rideout do not, are ignoring or do not understand induced demand. They are ignoring the fact that if you make more lanes, you're going to get more cars on the road. And this is fossil fuel infrastructure. So we're about to invest a quarter billion dollars in basically expanded fossil fuel infrastructure in the sector, in, in a, a dense urban area in an old city which no one is doing today except for Rhode Island that I know of. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, it's completely backwards. I'm sorry, but this is regressive. This is 1950s, 1960s thinking. And in the, in the sector that is the most important sector to cut emissions in. So transportation is number one, and we need to take transportation seriously. And I, I'm really, I was pleased to see that Governor Raimondo signed on to the Transportation and Climate Initiative. I think that's the name of the initiative, the multi-state transportation initiative. Yes. That still has to go through the legislature. And then we're asking for that to be implemented by the state government. It, listen, as someone who has watched director, who's watched the state government not pass a bike mobility plan, not pass a mobility plan, basically kill these plans. And, and we're not even getting into the potentially illegal behavior of not following the state guide plan here. But who's watched the state government's complete recalcitrance on these matters? Let me tell you, there there is no way that I would trust the state of Rhode Island to implement this plan. We need this to come from. We need strong moves from the legislature to tackle transportation emissions. Another big one is buildings, and these two sectors are related. Transportation building, you know, the transportation buildings nexus. This is the biggest thing that we have to solve. And and don't get me wrong, electricity is really important. Because we're going to need to, we, you know, we need to rapidly transition to renewables, and we need to build a lot more power so that we can uh, provide electricity for trucks to run on, so that we can provide electricity for electric vehicles, so we can provide more electricity for heat pumps, because we need to move all of these sectors to electrification. But at the end of the day, the transportation and housing nexus is the thing that concerns me most, because this is not going to be an easy one to solve. You know, the average car stays on the road for 11 years. And buildings, decades to centuries. 
So we have a capital stock turnover problem here. And that's why we need to act now. We need to act now in terms of decarbonizing our transportation system and in terms of decarbonizing our buildings. I agree completely. And later on the show, I'm going to talk about at least my EV, my electronic vehicle that I own. I own a Tesla Model 3, and it's just a fantastic car uh, from a driving perspective. But from a clean energy perspective, it it also provides so many advantages over a gas car. Uh, So I'll come back to that later. But I I want to get back to jobs. Uh, We often... We often hear insane claims from climate denialists, conservatives, uh, the oil lobby, uh, that good climate policy and green energy is going to cost jobs. Uh, You know, what about coal jobs? What about oil jobs? Where are the jobs going to go for these tired old industries that pollute? Uh, Of course, people don't realize that solar installation, solar installer is is during at at least the first part of 2020 was literally the fastest growing job in the nation. Uh, is that still on point? Uh, I'm not sure. I haven't seen the recent statistics. Um, I do know that, you know, last time I checked, there were a quarter million people working in the solar industry. That's a lot more than are working in coal. Oh, so yeah. At this point, the jobs are in clean energy. You know, one of the things that people don't realize about clean energy is that per unit of energy produced, there's a lot more jobs in clean energy than there is in coal and oil. You know, it, we don't have to worry so much about coal in New England because we've got like one little coal-fired power plant in New Hampshire. Like it's basically, it's almost extinct in New England. But natural gas, fossil gas, which is in this case fracked gas, mostly coming in from the Algon- from the um, Marcellus Shale, BOB Algonquin pipeline, that is sending energy dollars out of state. So when you turn on your heater to turn on the gas, you're sending money out of state. When we run these natural gas-fired power plants, like the Manchester Street Station in downtown Providence, we're sending money out of state. Whereas if we, when we build wind and solar, we may have to buy the solar panels and the wind turbines. For the solar panels, that's a small portion of the cost of the overall installation. So much of it is about the actual installation, and so much of it is about the design work. So much of it is jobs that can't be offshored that it keeps the energy dollars local and it creates local economic opportunities. I mentioned earlier the tremendous opportunities for our ports from offshore wind. Uh, you know, there's, there's, just, there's, there's a tremendous opportunity here for us to create a broad swath of jobs and not just for people who have college degrees. You, you don't need a college degree to be a solar installer. You don't need to, you know, you don't need to be a college, you don't have to, have to have a college degree to be on one of these boats that's out servicing wind turbines. And we haven't even gotten into the need to retrofit buildings. That right there could be the greatest job creator of all. And, and the opportunities for the unions here, by the way, are enormous. The opportunities for electricians, there's a reason why IBW has a wind turbine by its hiring, by its hall in Boston. Because that's, this is the biggest thing that ever happened for them. What I'd like to get at is who's holding this up? All these great things on the horizon that we could start working at right this moment, right this moment, um, you know, the jobs, the clean air, clean water, uh, all this stuff uh, that comes with a clean energy transition. Um, we like to name names. What what positions of power, you don't have to name individual people, but what positions of power are preventing this from happening in our state, you know, whether in the past or right now? Well, you know, I think that there's been some vision on behalf of the Raimondo administration, but it has not been followed up on the ground. Uh, And I I think that there's plenty of blame to go around in the state government. Um, From the transportation side, Rhode Island's approach to transportation has been nothing short of regressive. 
and that applies to all of the state agencies. There's a can't-do attitude that I hear. I, I've actually had officials from RIPTA tell me in a public meeting, hey, this is Rhode Island. Why don't you move to California? <laughs> wow. And it, it's amazing. The, the can't-do attitude that we get from the state government here is really and, – and let's be honest here. The state, the state agencies involved in transportation are a big part of the problem. Uh, but when we talk about – there's there's also there's a need for vision that just hasn't happened yet. Frankly, I haven't seen I haven't seen an articulation of this vision yet on the left, which is one of the reasons why I wrote the piece. I, there's some people who are doing some good work right now, but there's a need for a more full vision, including from the climate community here in Rhode Island, of how we're going to decarbonize. I mean, we've seen some some ambitious legislation, but it it falls short of this of this more comprehensive, complete vision of how we're going to move forward. So I think that the vision is going to have to come from the progressives because I don't think anyone else is going to do it. But I think that we're going to need to see some leadership uh, in the state house, in both chambers. And I'm, I'm excited about a lot of the people, a lot of the new members and some of a few of the returning members. Uh, and with the, the new, I, I, I'm hoping to see better things from the new house leadership than we saw from the previous. Uh, from the leadership of, of Mattiello. Agreed. But we need, you know, we're going to need to, we're going to need people to think differently because I think that the thing that's mostly, that is most missing here in Rhode Island is vision. I agree completely. And you mentioned that can't do attitude. That's That seems to be the case, or at least uh, was the case. And, and I'm hoping like you that these new progressive legislators that were voted in last November take a different tact and follow through on their promise to deliver a green policy. It sure looks like they will, um, but I agree that it does have to start at the General Assembly. You know, this past summer, I, I took up my drone around my mom's neighborhood in North Providence, and one thing I was stunned by was the number of homes with solar panels. It's clear that solar is becoming a thing. Um, what are you seeing from a numbers perspective in terms of solar adoption here in Rhode Island? Sure. Um, well, you know, I ran the numbers. It's in, in a couple of weeks now, we'll get the final numbers from the U.S. Department of Energy uh, via the Energy Information Administration on electricity output. And then I'll, I'd be able to tell you what happened in 2020. Uh, I really wait for state for full state years instead of doing just months. This comes out of the publication Electric Power Monthly. Okay. And, you know, I'm one of the only people I know who knows how to actually tease those numbers out at the state level. <laughs> Take <some> math. <laughs> Not exactly an accessible document. Uh, but in 2019, in February, in February 2020, we got the 2019 numbers. And what we saw was that Rhode Island more than doubled solar output and it more than doubled wind output. And it was the only state in the nation that did this. And wow. part of that was, you know, uh, I know a lot of people in the environmental movement hate, hate green development. Well, guess what? That doubling of wind output... That's from the wind turbines that they put up in Johnston. Wow! And in terms, yep. And in terms of the solar output, uh, solar is growing rapidly. So the good news is the doubling. The bad news is we're still behind. You know, uh, national average is about ten percent wind and solar on the grid. We're about half that in Rhode Island. So we're catching up, but I mean we're moving quickly, but we have a lot of room to catch up. And you know, I think that we've got a really, we've got a lot of really great local companies. Uh, and we, they've been doing a lot of great work. I, you know, I think that they've they've managed to to get a lot of solar online despite a lot of resistance from National Grid. And uh, you know, there, there are people out there who are fighting every day to make this happen. Um, there's there's a lot more to go. And I'm I have to note that rooftop solar is a great technology, 
Uh, it delivers electricity right at the point of demand. It can really help with resilience. Uh, you know, it delivers power during the day, which we use more power during the day than at night, even though the, the peak is really tends to be more in the afternoon to, to evening. Uh, but the, the concern here is, is that we won't be able to meet all of our electricity needs with rooftop solar. National Renewable, the U.S. Department of Energy's National Renewable Energy Laboratory did a study several years back, and they looked at the raw potential of rooftop solar in all 50 states. And Rhode Island came up near the top in terms of being able to meet electricity demand with rooftop solar. But we still could only get about halfway there in terms of our technical potential. And that was, there's a few things to keep in mind here. One, that was to meet current demand. If we electrify everything, if we electrify all the vehicles, and if we electrify all the heating, we're going to double our electricity demand in this right. right. And the other thing is, is that that's technical potential. We're never going to cover every square foot of every roof in this state. So we'll never, we'll never achieve technical potential. So rooftop solar is a great technology. It's really great for resilience, but it's only going to be a part of the solution in the future. And those, those people say, well, I don't like wind turbines. Let's just do rooftop solar. No, no. We need to do rooftop solar and wind. Yeah, you know, we need to do off. rooftop solar, and we also need to put solar on every landfill, on every brownfield. We should, hey, look, rooftop solar parking lots, parking canopies, brilliant for parking lots. You get shade for vehicles. They don't get rained on. They don't get snowed on. They don't get as hot, and you generate electricity. So we need the mass deployment of rooftop parking canopies. We need it along the sides of highways. It's going to be a challenge. We're going to need to put roof, we're going to need to put solar in a lot of places in a lot of the extraneous places if we're to avoid cutting down forest to put up solar or to putting it or to converting farmland to solar. Yeah. So I mean, it's, it's, and I know that that's something people in the state really care about. And we've gone, you know, there's been lots and lots of fights about this, but look, you know, we're the second most densely populated state in the nation. We got a lot of work to do. I agree. It really is an all of the above mentality, whereas former Speaker Mattiello, our good friend, took the opposite tact of we can't do anything, none of the above. <laughs> so good climate policy does require, you know, solar and wind and EVs and cutting down your emissions personally and your you know companies and and everyone needs to participate. That's just the only way it's going to work. Um, and it has to work. Uh, so I'm glad you hit on that. Um, but the last thing I want to ask you about is hydrogen. Let's talk hydrogen. Uh, you're a big proponent of hydrogen's growth potential as a fuel source. Um, for our listeners who just have no idea how hydrogen plays into the renewable energy landscape, can you give them a quick overview on how hydrogen is used and will be used in a green economy? Sure. So hydrogen's really an exciting uh, It's an exciting resource. And, you know, people talk about it as a fuel. It's actually an energy carrier. It's a way to bring energy from one place to another. And, and it, it's a sort of a subtle difference. But uh, I think some of the really exciting things about hydrogen are potential to decarbonize the places that we've had just had a really hard time. So, you know, one of the, one of the sources of greenhouse gas emissions people don't think much about New England is steel. Uh, well, you know, if you go to our, our, our bridges, our highways, you've got steel. You go to any of the big buildings, you have steel girders. You know, steel is this fundamental input into our civilization. And yet the way that steel is made has been burning coke, which is uh, coal that's nearly pure carbon, to pull the oxygen out of iron ore, leaving just the iron so you can make steel. 
Now, in Sweden, there's a plant that started operating in August. It's a pilot plant to use hydrogen to do this. So basically, you've taken one of the most polluting industrial sectors, something that we absolutely need as an input for our civilization, uh, and we found a way to make it to do it carbon free. So now there's this there's this threat that uh, hydrogen-based direct reduction poses to the rest of the, the steel industry and to the old steel mills because if this can scale and if this can be done cheaply enough, we can transition the steel industry. Now there's going to be a lot of what we call creative destruction there because bad news if you've recently invested in a in the old type of steel mill um, this isn't as much of an issue again this is something that matters a lot for china it matters for europe it matters for other places but it, it's a big part of the global warming picture so that's steel over there um, another area that hydrogen is really exciting in is electricity generation and the thing is, is that solar and wind can get us a long way to decarbonizing. But we have this problem as you move farther towards the poles. And really, this means the North Pole, because there's not as many people living near the South Pole. Um, but so basically, the farther north you move in Europe, in the United States, the more dependent you are on wind in your wind solar mix. Uh, and Part of that is the solar isn't producing as much in the winter, so you need another source of power. You need wind. The thing about wind is it could, it, there can be low wind for a couple of weeks. So you, you'd have to either massively overbuild wind or you need some other source of power to fill in what they call the dark doldrums, uh, you know, the times when the wind isn't blowing, when there isn't a lot of sun in winter. This has been a big challenge, and this has been like, how do we how do we fix this last? Well, it's been a big theoretical challenge. We haven't reached it as a practical challenge at all, really anywhere. But you know, in terms of thinking about how we move to a completely decarbonized electricity system, you know, there's been a lot of thought of, okay, oh, that last 10 to 20 percent, what do we do? If you've got hydropower, you can use the hydropower to balance. But if you don't, if you're in say the Midwest or you know, in New England, where we may have limited access to, we've got plenty of hydropower in Quebec to use, but there are issues with accessing it. Then what do you do? What do you do in the winter when you don't have enough power? Well, one of the things that you can do is you can simply burn hydrogen. And the emission from burning hydrogen is water. It, it's, it's, and you can make the hydrogen from water. There's this process called electrolysis, where basically you use electricity to split water into hydrogen and oxygen. You can use the hydrogen to make steel. You can use the hydro. You can burn the hydrogen. You can use the hydrogen in a fuel cell. Uh, the, the fuel cells can be used for vehicles. They they are currently being used uh, for things like forklifts in a number of places. Um, they can be used for the, either these fuel cells or turbines, similar to the turbines in gas plants, can be used to burn this hydrogen. And so right now there's a bunch of projects going on in the United States. A bunch of utilities have placed orders with Mitsubishi Hitachi to buy their new class of turbines that burns hydrogen. And they're actively planning to replace the turbines in their gas plants with uh, these turbines, and then to slowly transition to try out mixes of hydrogen and natural gas. And so this is an, this is an exciting development in terms of being able to transition off. Now, let me, let me be clear about something here. I don't think that we need more gas plants to do this. We have already too many gas plants in the United States. But it is exciting to think about transitioning some of these plants. Hey, maybe our own Manchester Street Power Station in Providence could be burning hydrogen. You know, we have this opportunity to, to move to something that emits only water instead of carbon pollution. Uh, and it's, 
it's an emerging technology that's it's it's getting out of the idea stage into something that's actually uh, being done. So that's you know that's a huge development. There are a number of other niche applications of hydrogen. You know, people have talked about it for shipping. That's not something I know as much about. I, I think that the the steel and the uh, electricity generation applications are, to me, the most exciting. There's also the potential for long-distance trucking. Uh, it's it's difficult we're to to get a battery big enough, and there's some issues, um, including the recharge times, even with fast chargers for batteries, that make it so that for certain applications in trucking, hydrogen may be uh, a more near-term exciting opportunity. So there, there's a couple of these these applications out there but you know the big deal again for me is really the steel and the electricity aspect and uh just between these two alone we could see a huge boom in the hydrogen industry awesome so there is a lot of development on every front whether it's solar wind hydrogen electric vehicles etc it seems like things are finally moving in the right direction here in this country um hopefully we can see the growth uh, that level of growth in rhode island as well with our more progressive legislature uh, he is Christian Rosalind. Follow him on Twitter at C. Rosalind. That's spelled C. Rose, L-U-N-D. He recently authored a very informative op-ed for Uprise RI on what Rhode Island needs to do to decarbonize. So you can check that out in our editorial section. Christian, thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing your insight with us. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you, Greg. All right. Have a great week, and we'll chat soon. Sounds great. All right. All right, so before we get to my next guest, I want to talk electric vehicles for a second, or EVs as they're popularly known. Um, there's a lot of them out there these days, a lot more than you might remember, uh, even from a couple of years ago. Uh, you've got the obviously the, the Tesla lineup. You've got the you know Chevy Bolt, the Kia Nero. Um, you got the Hyundai Kona. You know, there's, there's there's a few out there, that, and these are pretty decent cars. Um, I can't speak for driving them myself, but looking at the specs, looking at the range you get, looking at the pricing, um, EVs are becoming quite affordable, uh, even on the low end range. Um, but, uh, I want to talk about, I guess you could call the mid range, uh, for a moment. Um, Tesla's model three, uh, I own a model three, so I can kind of speak on the benefits of it pretty much in detail. I've owned it for about two years now and, uh, you know, pe- people think of Teslas, they think of extremely expensive cars, but the Model 3 starts at 38000 So I-, I understand it's not the on the cheap end of cars, uh, new cars, but it's certainly uh, in the mid-range, I'd say. And with so many people driving SUVs these days, uh, SUVs are, are can be pricey. So I'd, I'd say it's fair to call it in the middle, middle of the range of what people spend on a car these days. So Model 3 comes in uh, a few trim levels. Uh, but the entry-level one I'll talk about here for a second. Um, I own the, the, a higher-end trim, but uh, for purposes of this argument here, of this uh, discussion, we'll use the, the entry-level model, which is still a great car. Uh, so it starts at 38000 uh, and that gives you 260 miles of range. Now, um, in the winter, the Model 3 used to suffer from reduced range, and the reason is because of the way its heater works. So obviously in the winter, you want the heater on in the car to stay warm. And the uh, previous generation Model 3s, uh, 2018, 2019, and some 2020s, used um, electric uh, resistance. So basically used an electric current, kind of like uh, you know a plug-in heater you'd have at your house to heat the car. Um, the benefits to this is it's extremely fast to heat up. You know, With a gas car, you'll sit in the car for five minutes or so before you get any heat at all coming out of those vents where... Model 3, you've got heat coming out, you know, 45 seconds after you turn it on. So 
Um, very, very quick to heat up. But the problem is it uses a lot of battery power to heat the car. So Tesla realized this and they made a change. So uh, midway through 2020 and all the new Model 3s use a heat pump system, which you're probably more familiar with. Um, ductless mini splits in your home use heat pumps. And uh, that technology has been around for a long time. So the cars use a heat pump, which is a little slower to heat up than a resistance heater, but uh, still going to be faster than your typical gas car and also going to be way more power efficient. So whereas before that 260 miles of range in the winter, you might get 220 instead uh, with the newer vehicles, you're getting a lot closer to that 260. So the first question I always get about my electric vehicle is what's the range? You know, do you run out of, of power and you're stranded somewhere? And the answer to that is no, I've never, ever been stranded. And I've pushed this thing to, you know, half a percent of battery level left on trips and stuff like that. And and I've heard many, many times that the car actually has about 15 to 20 miles of range once it gets to zero, kind of like a buffer. But uh, needless to say, uh, range anxiety is really not a thing anymore. At least I can tell you with Tesla's, there's charging stations everywhere, whether they're third-party stations or whether they're superchargers on 95 um, they're pretty well located now. If you're going to take a trip across the country or, you know, to somewhere you know, in Pennsylvania, New York, oh, there's plenty of charging along the way. So uh, it's not anything to worry about. Um, the other question I get is, uh, you know, how cheap is it to to charge it up, you know, compared to gas? And I believe a full tank, if you will, my car gets my trim level gets about 315 miles of range when it's full. And you're talking probably about 12 to 15 dollars worth of electricity when you charge that at a Tesla station to fill it up if it was at zero. So I'd say, you know, half, maybe even more than that uh, of ga- of savings versus gas uh, for the same range. Um, but there's a lot of other benefits by the besides the more basic ones that you first think of um, long term benefits. Obviously, first of all, you're saving on gas. So the calculation is probably about forty five hundred dollars you'll save on gas versus electricity over a six-year period. So if you own the car for six years, that's 4500 boom, right off the bat, you're saving. Um, so now you're looking at the car comes from 38000 now it's only 33500 So um, it becomes cheaper. And then maintenance, of course. No oil changes. There's no you know transmission fluid to change or anything like that. You know The only maintenance you really got to worry about is brakes. And that's you know a long, long ways out. I'll explain why in a second. And, uh, and windshield wiper fluid, you know, you had windshield wiper fluid, but there's no chemicals or, or fluids to change as far as the engine goes. It's, it's sealed. It's just, it runs for electric engines are very, very low maintenance. So, um, it runs forever. So besides the, the fuel savings and all that, you gotta remember too, no standing at the gas pump. You know, this, this car charges at your house. You plug it in when it's convenient to you. Uh, you don't have to plug it in every time it's at your house. If you have 80% battery left and you're not going anywhere for a few days, you don't have to plug it in. Um, but you can if you want to and always have that full tank ready to go whenever you leave your home. So uh, the other thing I want to talk about is, you know, the driving experience, because the driving experience, at least, you know, in the Tesla Model 3 is much, much different than a regular gas car. Um, the first thing you'll notice when you drive it is the enormous visibility out of the front windshield. And that comes from not having an engine under the front hood. So the hood can be a lot lower and it doesn't look weird, you know, from an external point of view. But when you're driving, you have this sweeping view. You just feel so much more in command of the road, having that giant opening uh, to see the road. You just see the road a lot better, you know, in terms of, you know, especially small objects in front of the car. Um, you can pick them off a lot faster and easier than you could in another car, especially these SUVs with these very tall hoods and these giant engines. Um, 
The car has the best, in my opinion, the best vehicle security system in the industry. It's called Sentry Mode. And essentially, it turns on all six cameras that the car has outside of it. It turns them on when you're not in the car and records. So when someone walks by the car, you know, they scratch up against your car or something like that, you know exactly who it is. It shows you right on the camera. And it even marks, you know, if you go into a store and you come out and nobody was near your car, it's going to tell you, you know, nothing happened. But if someone walked by your car, it's going to say, hey, you know, this many episodes occurred or this many occurrences of, you know, people walking by your car occurred and you can watch them right on the screen, right on the display screen that the car comes with. So it's really convenient to see that. And I'll tell you, uh, sentry mode is definitely a deterrent. And I'll explain why. My old car, um, nothing to write home about, when I first got it new many, many years ago, I remember after a few months, it would have, you know, dings and scratches and stuff like that from being parked in a parking lot and people walking by it and not caring and just, you know, scratching it with their coat or bag or, or whatever. Uh, nothing malicious, just they just don't care, don't pay attention and scratch the car. And I wondered, you know what, with Teslas, at least now if this happens, you know who did it. You can, you know, report it if it's a you know major damage or, or whatever, just at least know what happened. And two years I've owned this car and not a single scratch on it from, from anybody. So I'm guessing either I'm the luckiest person alive, and that's just a coincidence because I think this has happened to all of us, or the people know that Teslas have cameras and they just keep further away. Um, I don't know, but either way, it works. Um, and let me talk about the app, the app that you control this car with. I, well, I should say when you're when you're a remote, you can control the, the car via the app. And it's fantastic, the things you can control. So first of all, obviously, you can set your climate control. So there's no automatic starter with a Tesla. It's a battery car. There's no need to start it. It's just always on whenever you want to, you know, do something. It's just boom, hit the button. It's on. So uh, you can set your climate control in the winter. You can turn the heat on. You can turn the defrosters on. Um, in the summer, you can turn the AC on, uh, in the winter, I should go back. You can also turn the heated seats on as well, right from your app and, um, the windows. So let's say it's, uh, it's summer, it's really hot and you, you know, you, you want to get back into your car and you don't want it to be, you know, super hot. You can vent the windows. Um, of course, obviously you can turn the climate control on and run the AC before you get there. But if you want to, you know, let a little bit of the heat out first. You can vent the windows right from the app. If you are in the opposite situation, you're in, uh, let's say, a movie theater, and you left your windows vented, and, oh, shoot, it's raining. Well, you don't want to have to leave the movie. Well, no problem. Just take out the app, hit close windows on the app, and it closes the windows. The other cool feature they just recently introduced is that you can set it so that when you walk away from your car, it automatically closes any windows that happen to be left open. So in case your kids leave a window open and you didn't realize it and there's rain or snow coming, uh, Tesla's got that taken care of for you. So really, really cool. Um, what else? Valet mode. Valet mode is cool. If you drop your car off to a valet at a restaurant, you can turn that on. And what that does is it limits the acceleration. So if you got one of the faster Teslas, these cars are such a fun thing to drive. You can kind of eliminate that whole Ferris Bueller's day off, uh, you know, driving the Porsche uh, 100 miles an hour over hills and the streets and stuff like that. Uh, you can eliminate that whole problem there with valet mode. It basically restricts the car's acceleration to like, you know, grandma's driving and, uh, it limits the top speed as well and, uh, blocks personal information from showing up on the screen. So like your navigation locations, things like that, um, you know, privacy stuff, it'll block that from being shown. So just, you know, it doesn't really mess with the valet any, if they're doing their job, they're not even going to notice it's on, but it's nice to have that peace of mind of knowing they're not going to mess with your car. Um, what else? So the, uh, the app, it's really amazing. So so if you 
parked somewhere, a big giant uh, parking lot, and happened to forget where you parked. Uh, of course, you have the option to make the horn blare and make the lights flicker, but if it's a big enough lot, that may not work, you know, TF Green or, or something like that. So you can turn on the GPS map and just uh, bring it up on your app, and you can just walk to your car using GPS. It'll show you exactly where it is. Uh, you can also schedule service from the app. Um, there's, there's really not a whole lot you can't do uh, on the app. It's pretty neat. So, uh, but, but the real question is, uh, how fun is it to drive? And I'll tell you, uh, I honestly recommend, whether you can afford one or not, just go test drive one. Go up to Warwick, uh, go down to Warwick, I should say. Go up to Dedham Mass. Those are the two, I think, closest sales locations. And just test drive one. Drive it around, drive it up Bald Hill Road. And you're going to experience something you've never experienced before. It's just a, a incredibly fun car to drive. They've really reinvented the driving experience, and it's just so much fun. And you read about that. I read about that before I got mine and just couldn't wait to drive it. And it just absolutely exceeds expectations. Um, it's the most fun you'll have driving any vehicle. And uh, I want to point out, too, that uh, I'm not a Tesla shill. Um, I own the car. I like the, I love the car. But you know, Tesla didn't pay me anything to say this stuff. I'm not, you know, shooting out referral codes to get any sort of incentive if you go and buy a Tesla. That's not what Uprise is about. I'm talking about the car just straight up because it's a great car. It's great for the environment, and um, I suggest you try and drive one. And if you can't afford a Model Three, buy a different EV. You know, if you're in the market for a car. Check out electric vehicles because it's a different driving experience. It's a better driving experience. You're, you're saving on fuel, um, and there's no emissions when you're driving. You're helping the environment out too. All right, so my next guest, Adam Gent, uh, comes from Whaling City Solar. And the reason I'm having him on, despite him being, you know, a, he's, he's selling solar, you know. He's not just a consultant or an activist. He actually does sell solar. And the reason that we're having him on is because when you talk to him, uh, if you're interested in solar and you talk to him, you'll see right away that uh, he's looking out for you. He's not trying to make the sale. He'll talk himself out of the sale. He'll talk you out of the sale um, before he sells you something that just doesn't make sense uh, for you. The a solar solution needs to be right for your home. Your house needs to have good sunlight. Uh, there's a lot of factors that go into it, and we'll talk about that with him. Uh, but I'm having him on because uh, he's just a good guy to talk to about solar and isn't going to try to push you into something that doesn't work for you. So uh, who could ask for anyone better than that in terms of if you are interested in solar uh, and don't and don't want a hassle approach, um, you know, definitely speak with him. So uh, without further ado, my second guest, Adam Jen from Whaling City Solar. Sir, how are you? Welcome to the show. Hey, what an intro. Thanks so much, Greg. <laughs> Anytime. So let's talk solar. Uh, we just had Christian Rosalind on and we talked with him about all the various renewable energy sources and projects happening worldwide. But for our listeners here in Rhode Island who are wondering what they can do to help, solar is not only a great way to do it, but also provides numerous other benefits. Uh, solar is where it's at. So for someone interested in solar right now, price is, of course, going to be a big factor for many. And I think people are going to be pleasantly surprised at the numbers. How affordable is solar these days, Adam? It's uh, it's made some really big strides when I when I started uh, you know a long time ago now in solar. I mean we were we were spending you know seven hundred dollars a panel just in the raw material costs you know and the, those costs have come down so much because of the development of how just how how much the world has taken to the technology and th there's some real core principles behind that. And one of the big ones is 
just operating costs of a system, a solar system, whether it's installed on your own residential property or if it's installed on a big field on the side of 24 or if it's installed um, on the roof of a really big company, it doesn't have any moving parts. And so it's a very stable investment in that, you know, you you don't replace the wires in your walls, you know, every 10 years because they wear out. It's, there's no moving parts, so everything stays working. And they stay working for so long, this 25, 30 years, that when you divide the cost over all that time, then you start realizing that the power coming out of that is about, is about a fifth of the cost of what it costs coming in out of the pole. And so once the bigger companies started to realize this, because, you know, they do their spreadsheets and they get all the way in on it, <laughs> then the factory started making more and more panels to move the demand. And then as that demand goes up and up, the supply adjusted. And now we have panels that, you know, cost $150 at our back cost. Now, that's not the end cost to a consumer like a, a, a homeowner, because there's a lot of other steps in there. There's labor, there's electricians, there's, uh, you know, permitting with the state. There are engineering costs that go into this. But, you know, right now for a normal person that maybe has a $150 bill, you're getting down into like the $20,000 range now, um, which is, you know, very accessible when you compare it that if you're spending $1,800 a year, in electricity costs of your $150 a month. And then we also have some incentives that are coming back. So it's not that full 20 grand. There are federal incentives, there are Rhode Island incentives that when you adjust those, that net cost is maybe under $10,000. So if you can spend $10,000 and get 1,800 back a year, um, you know, that's in very broad strokes kind of where solar is in 2021. That's a great overview, and I want to get a little more specific. So our listeners can get an idea on costs. Uh, a $20,000 system before incentives you had mentioned, uh, that's probably going to be in the middle range of what many homeowners will need. Um, I got solar about three years ago, and my system after incentives cost about 18800 But we have a decent, pretty decent electricity demand at our house. Uh, we got two kids. You know, there's TVs. There's, uh, you know, we got an electric vehicle. Uh, for the average homeowner, they likely don't even need a system that that, po- that powerful. Uh, but let's talk about all the incentives available. First, you've got your 26% tax credit from the federal government on any solar project. That's correct. And um, if you want to go into any detail with anybody, that, that is a full tax credit. That's not a write-off. It's, um, you're going to get dollar for dollar um, for all of that tax credit. So it's just a it's one of the misconceptions that kind of people think of when they think of the tax benefits of solar. Okay, um, okay. They, and Rhode Island has experimented with some different uh, programs. There used to be a kind of a system where you would have two meters on the house, one measuring the cost of electricity going in, and then one measuring the solar going out. And then the solar going out was worth more than the power going in, and that's how you save your money. Or they also have the lump rebate, um, kind of up to $7,000 right now, um, of depending on the size of the system going forward. And that's the one that's um, getting most out. I think the next uh, application deadline data is in mid-March. So they do it in 
block, so a couple times a year, anybody that's had a solar system installed in this range applies and says, yep, I had this done, and here's all the pictures to prove it, here's my installer, and um, you get a big rebate. You've got your Rhode Island $7,000 credit, assuming that this system maxes out the credit, probably will. Um, if not, you're talking maybe a thousand, two thousand dollar difference, but it should. Um, so you've got that credit. Now your twenty thousand dollar system is only costing you less than eight thousand. That's what we're talking about here, and um, and and to some people that's not a liquid number, and that's kind of where you know you you, you talk about it and you say, well, it's a lot easier to go back to your own um, mortgage provider, you know, your own lending institution, and say can I borrow $8,000 over five or 10 years? And if you're just doing the fast math on 10 years, you know, that's a hundred bucks a year. And if it was offsetting $150 of electricity, um, this is a way that we don't have to cough up this big chunk of change up front, knowing that we can get these rebates and put them back to the principal. And that's kind of the, the higher level conversation that, you know, we, we try to get across to people of what fits for your finances. And uh, ho- hopefully all solar installers are having that level of conversation with people of what works for you. So in terms of return on investment, obviously people have many reasons to upgrade to solar. But for those wanting to see this as a good investment, let's do the numbers. So you've got that $20,000 system after incentives costs around $8,000. Now you look at your utility bill and let's say your electric bill is 200 a month. Now I know our, some of our listeners will have bills that are higher, some will have lower. Uh, but with more you know, electrical type stuff coming online these days, people are getting you know EVs, they're getting ductless mini splits in their home, a lot of... Um, bigger screen TVs, appliances that use a lot of electricity. So let's assume a $200 a month bill. Uh, with those numbers, the solar system you install, that $20,000 system originally, will be completely paid for in less than five years. And after that, it's it's making you money. It's it's usually closer to the, the five to seven range when you kind of go through all the steps. A system that would offset $200 needs to offset more kilowatt hours, right? So it's a larger capacity system. But you're, you're in the right range here, in the right order of magnitude. You know, we're, we're looking, you know, five to eight, um, you know, would cover 90% of the people that are across uh-huh. if you were looking at a cash outlay. And that, when you compare that to... Our other options, I mean, we're we're in like 21%, 23% return on investment. If I was comparing that to like my stock portfolio right, and right. coming back 25 years, year after year with no fluctuation, I mean, this is, these, these are the, you know, if, if you're going to make an excuse on paper, these, these make it very obvious um, beyond the environmental concerns, which is the real reasons why I'm in the business is for the environmental reasons. You raised a great point. I, I mentioned earlier how you're so honest, even if it costs you a sale. And here you are arguing that my rosy numbers are too rosy. So nobody can say you're salesy. I love it. And I think our listeners appreciate that. So like you said, after it's paid for itself, it's it's making you money. All that electricity you don't have to pay National Grid for anymore. Yeah, I mean, and that's, and, and that's the reality. When I'm talking with people in the home, I'm talking out in the grocery store, you know, everybody's questions are about, you know, the money and the finance and can I afford this? The answer is 
pretty much across the board, yes, because if it's finance, it's zero out of pocket. Your bill is oh, your your monthly payment back is fixed, and it is always going to be less than what the bill is. If you had money liquid, it's a better investment than where you could put that money liquid. That's the money side, but you know we always want to spend enough time, and you know it's also in the premise of the whole episode here is all those kilowatt hours that it's producing on our own roof are hours that we're not pulling from the power plant. And when we're pulling from the power plant, we don't know where that power is really coming from the way our New England market works. And I use the analogy of when I go to the grocery store and I'm buying my vegetables and my meat, I don't really understand the supply chain going from where that was in a bigger hub before this and where it branches out and our electricity grid works the same way versus when the solar system is on your own house, you can see the direct pipe from your roof into your service panel, into the circuits that are feeling your house. And it's like having your own garden on top of your own house. And to just, to, I never wanted to always get lost in the money side. The money side always works. It's, it really is the future of our grid of where Europe um, is going. And eventually these grids will connect to each other and microgrids and our neighbor's house will be talking and sharing power with each other. And this is the future of it. You know, our power grid was made in 1940s. And we're still operating off the same infrastructure. And it's just kind of time to take the next step. And that's why I chose to do what I do for a living is because I really believe in that future message. Awesome. You spoke a little bit here about being grid agnostic and people having mini grids on their street, things like that. And that, of course, comes from battery storage. So, you know, for people that don't know, if you have a solar system installed on your roof, if the power goes out, by law, your solar system has to be cut off and stop producing energy for you. And the reason is because if it remained on, when the linemen are on the street trying to repair the lines that are down, uh, if there's power being fed in from your house to the lines, you can actually shock these linemen, these electrical technicians on the lines. So for that reason, it has to cut off. Uh, it can't just it, the, the systems aren't capable of just feeding into your home and not feeding into the grid. Uh, most of them anyway. Uh, however, with battery storage, that uh, provides a number of benefits, uh, not only obviously being able to store your power um, when the sun is not there, but also allowing you to keep running your solar system when National Grid goes out. So why don't you just take us through a little bit on battery storage and the incentives and the affordability? Yeah, of course. And that is uh, one of the more common questions that I get nowadays, because it, it seems like they go hand in hand, the battery storage and the solar. And so when in Rhode Island, we have something that we call net metering. So net metering is the ability to send back excess power when the house isn't using it. So even if I went on vacation for a week and my solar continued to produce, I'm going to send that power back through the meter, that meter is going to spin backwards. I'm going to get dollar for dollar credit for all of that power that I'm sending back to the grid. And so that is what we call grid-tied solar. And grid-tied solar is kind of the most accessible price option for people. When we're talking about the $20,000, that's the bare bones grid-tied solar system. It works very well economically. However, you know, uh, what, if we attached a battery system into it, now we're not just trading power at equity with the utility, we're actually keeping the physical electrons here on site. 
and it actually takes a few batteries in order to store a day's worth of uh, power of what your house uses, and typically two to three battery stacks in the size of that the batteries come nowadays. And the battery stacks are going to range between about ten and fifteen thousand dollars a piece to get them installed safely and working with the inverter because they have to talk with everything. We have to monitor what levels are in the batteries. So that way everything works very seamlessly. So why would somebody want to do that? Well, notionally, it feels good to have the power on your own site. Using that garden analogy again is the best thing we can do is have solar to reduce the load on the grid but if at night i'm still pulling from the grid because the sun's down it's great that i get the credits during the day but i'm still having the the power plant run full time for my house so if i had a battery plant uh, i had my own battery on my house now my battery can discharge at night and i know i'm not pulling anything from the grid i'm really confident that i have ownership and independence of my own energy options So that's one, is this kind of feeling of resiliency and having advocacy over your own power consumption. Uh, The second step is that there are workarounds for that solar system shutdown, is what we had said, as as how you had put it, where if the power goes down, the system can switch itself over into its kind of self-sufficient off-grid mode, and you can continue to have full backup power in your house and the solar continues to charge the battery system, um, cutting it off from the grid system so safely that the linemen can still go do all their work, but you can can still enjoy a day's worth of power if you had the right size battery stack, and then it would reset. So for our listeners who have questions about battery costs, uh, the federal government's 26% tax credit also applies when you have battery and storage installed, whether it's with the solar install or afterwards, correct? And uh, can you talk about the Rhode Island credit as far as that goes, too? Yes, as long as the incentive is still being offered by the government. Of course. course. So, uh, you know, recently we had our government extend our 26% tax credit for another two years. So that's another two years of everything being retro applied, um, but not at the state level, just the federal level. So you're not going to get another seven grand from Rhode Island for putting a battery in. That makes perfect sense because, you know, installers could rig the deals to take advantage of the incentives in a way that they were not designed for. Um, So for our listeners interested in solar right now, how can they find out if their home is a good candidate to get solar? Yeah, that's um, that's a great question. Well, so any solar contractor um, will do a free assessment for you. I mean, that should be part of the game for, for anybody. So you can look at the same kind of referral services you usually use if that's talking to your neighbors if that's going on a next door or facebook or yelp to figure out what other people have used um, for solar contractors or they're, they're going to do a free assessment for you and i always recommend people to talk to more than one um get a feel how do you how do they speak to you how would they were they able to get back to you at a good time and you know, it, it's probably telling of how your whole relationship's going to be with them over the next two months of uh, of going through an installation. But you're right. The first step is to qualify the roof. There are also a number of online tools you could use. There's, a re- there's actually a really fast free one that people can use. It's called Project Sunroof. It's uh, made by Google, so it's, you know, got a good 
got a good name on it. And as long as the Google cameras have kind of gone near your neighborhood, which they have for the majority of, of Rhode Island, you can get a quick picture of kind of like how bright yellow or how dark purple your roof is. The brighter yellow, the better. Um, if you just wanted to get a quick glance of, boy, how much sunlight am I getting? And, you know, you, you can use your own eyes. We, we all have great uh, natural instincts here that we can walk outside and say, does my house facing south we get most of our sun on the south side do i have a nice wide piece of roof or is it covered with dormers and uh vent pipes and everything on the sunny side of the roof and um if you don't have trees and you got sun on your your roof right now is right now we're in the middle of winter so the sun's lowest in the sky if you don't have tree shade in the middle of winter you're sure as heck aren't going to have it in the middle of summer and um as long as you've got a good amount of roof i mean a good amount of sunlight you've uh you got a good house for solar. <laughs> yeah, Project Sunroof is a great website to check your home's solar capabilities. Uh, it works a lot like Google Maps. It shows your roof in shades based on how much sun it gets all day. Uh, you want to have a bright yellow or bright white roof when you look on there. Um, but it's free. Just type your address in and you can see right away. Um, the way you get that is by having a home, you know, that, that bright white roof on Project Sunroof. The way you get that, the way you have, you know, a good home for solar uh, is having a home that's oriented in a way where the sun passes directly across it instead of over it. Is that correct? Yeah. So, um, and then there's a whole lot of fun math that, you know, we do behind the scenes here to really kind of dial in how much power there. Because it's important to understand that the paybacks will vary, you know, by 20% or so, depending on how much sunlight is hitting the equipment, because it costs us or any installer the exact same amount of money to put 30 panels on a shady roof as it takes to put 30 panels on a sunny roof. Same permits, same labor, same equipment. So the cost of the outlay of the system is the same, but if uh, you're getting a way more sun on that roof, you're going to have a lower electricity bill in order to offset. So it's very important to do those accurate calculations with the professional. Um, in order to really dial in what those savings are. And as if you're talking to more than one company, that's one like little secret pro tip here is really take a look at what the kilowatt hours, that's the, not to get too technical, but that's the name of the unit of electricity that we're paying for on our bill. If one guy says this many panels is gonna make this many kilowatt hours, and this guy says this many panels are gonna make a different number of kilowatt hours, those numbers should be kind of similar, and you can kind of start to do some deeper questions into them. So this is kind of educating the consumer base to understand that all solar proposals are not equal. So talk with a bunch of people, try and get a good feel of what their company is like overall more than just what's on the piece of paper i agree and when i went out for solar i got five quotes i recommend anyone listening do the same and, and adam will tell you that as well so i got five quotes and in the quotes they project your solar generation over time and what shocked me was not only did every installer project very similar numbers but those numbers ended up being an underestimate um it was it was really nice to see that they're not you know even installers that you know may not be the best or whatever they're still giving you honest numbers so for our listeners who like what they hear they're interested in checking out solar for their home what is the process to get started yeah so the process would be reaching out to a solar company and say i'm looking for a quote um and so the process would then be to 
you know, majority of companies nowadays, myself included, are doing remote first um, quoting visits where I would be looking at the satellite imagery. I've got satellite imagery of a roof and I can use different markers to kind of say, I know how much I can fit on this roof. Um, and so I, I can kind of see how much power I think the house is going to go. What I'm then going to ask you for would be a utility bill. One utility bill, your recent one, will have the last 12 months of what you've been using. Because in Rhode Island, we can't um, install a system that's much larger than what you've used for the last 12 months. You can't um, try and make money by really maxing this whole system out. You're, you're restricted by what your historical usage has been. Now, there's some exceptions if you know that you're buying an EV. We can put that in the paperwork, et cetera. But it's matching what 100% offset is kind of the goal here. Um, and so you come together with a design and I come together with a price. And then really the next step, some installers will have you sign an installation agreement at that point that notionally this works, and then they'll send out a site tech. Um, with my company, I like to, to, I am the site tech. We don't have salespeople. Um, <laughs> so our engineers and project managers go out directly um, when you're coming with us. And so we'll come out even before you sign a contract. And I'm going to look at the structure. Uh, I'm going to look at the uh, electrical service just to make sure there's no specific infrastructure upgrade. Sometimes some people get some really flimsy two-by-four attics up there and uh, would need some structural reinforcements. Or maybe you've only got a 100-amp service, but you've got a really big bill and I, I need to upgrade the electrical service. Something like that. It's very rare, maybe 5% of total systems uh, require any upgrades, probably less than that, to be honest with you. But just to double check to make sure that there's no cost that we have to put in ahead of time. And once that's done, um, we're, then it's kind of in the installer's boat of we're going to go get engineering. We're going to go use those engineering plans to pull a set of permits. We need permits from the utility. We need permits from the town. We need permits from uh, the state for the incentives. Once those are in, then we come in, you do installation. Installation is like a two-day process. Um, it's really kind of funny that you're waiting sometimes four weeks to get all these permits, and then, you know, the crew shows up, and they're done the same day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, this is just, this is our, I'm sure you had the same experience. Um, yes, yes. And then after that's done, um, we have an electrical inspector come by. Electrical inspector gives us a thumbs up and says, you did it just the way you said you were going to do it. And then we go back to the utility and we say, look, we did it just the way we said it. And the inspector agreed. And then they give us PTO, which is permission to operate. And that's really the best day of the whole thing. Is we come back and flip the switch and, you know, whole house energizes and now we're a solar house. So whole process can typically take about two months um, from beginning first visit to end energization, but it should be very little um, kind of back and forth beyond the first couple meetings when you're trying to pick the right equipment for the house and, you know, installer should talk you through the different steps. Should I be using this high-end LG panel? Should I be using a value Q-cell panel or whatever brand they're using? And, you know, there, there, there's a lot of little little nuances between those five different installers you're going to talk to so you know be patient they're all it's they're all a good deal it's just who's a who, who's the best fit for you 
Well, I love that you explained the process, and it's important to point out that everything is done for you. So uh, your solar installer, they get the permits, they do the roof survey, they work with National Grid. Uh, all that is taken care of by your solar installer. You don't have to do any of that stuff. And, and my install took about six or seven weeks, so you're definitely right there. Uh, but it does vary uh, by town, you know, because some towns are really slow and some towns are more efficient. Very, very much so. Yeah, yeah. But uh, like when we did my, my parents' house in Tiverton, it was beautiful, nice and nice and easy flowing. And that's where I grew up, by the way, on the north end uh, of the state, right, right in Tiverton. He is Adam Gent, and you can reach him at whalingcitysolar.com. I'm going to give you a plug because you deserve it. But look, look, everyone, get a bunch of quotes. Adam's going to tell you the same thing. It doesn't hurt. Um, Adam Gent, everyone, thank you so much for coming on the show, Adam, and uh, we'll chat again soon, sir. All righty, guys. Take care. All right. I hope this show was informative on climate issues and helpful in what you can do to start saving money with solar or an electric vehicle and help contribute to climate action. So that's it for our show this week. Uh, if you have feedback on the show, would love to hear it. You can email podcast at rifp.co. Uh, as always, please help support our show and Uprise RI by clicking the donate link on the top of any page at upriseri.com. And for the latest news on Rhode Island politics, climate change, and activism, of course, visit UpriseRI.com. Follow us on Twitter or Facebook. And we will see you next week. Steve will be back in action. We'll see you guys next week. Take care, everybody.